Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast. Jeff, introduce yourself. Uh, Jeff Gannon, Focus Compounding Podcast. Focus Compounding Podcast, sitting here with our focused compounding mugs. We hope everyone is having a great day. Hey, we're in New York right now. If you would like to meet up to talk about stocks or meet up to learn a little bit more about our managed money portion of the business, uh, reach out to me, info at focuscompounding.com. So in today's video, we are going to be revisiting the world's greatest book, The Intelligent Investment. Yes. And we're talking about it because I actually did a recent YouTube video where I was joking and I, I held up security analysis and the intelligent investor and said, if you can't fall asleep, read these two books and right. it'll put you it'll put you to sleep. Mm-hmm. And but I did say that there's two important chapters in that book. And I said chapter eight and chapter nine. We talked about chapter eight last week, which was Mr. Market. Chapter 20 is the one we're doing now. And we're doing chapter 20 right Correct. now, which yes. is margin of safety. Did, Correct. I, did I say the wrong thing? Nine. Or no? But that's fine. OK. All right, good. <laughs> so we're talking about margin of safety, which is obviously a great topic when it comes to value investing. Um, you know, you can apply margin of safety in all areas of your life. And one of my That's favorite so uh, examples is to explain that to people is one that Buffett always says. He said it's it's uh, margin of safety is the same reason why they build a road to, you know, be able to hold trucks that are that weigh way more than what trucks normally weigh, right? Yeah. Is he always use that example? Yep. So I think it's a it's a it's a cushion point, and then of course Seth Klarman wrote the book Margin of Safety, Correct. which yep. is how much is have you, have you ever seen how much how expensive that book is? It's pretty expensive. I don't know. Yeah, I got the the copy online. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> um, So uh, that's a good book. But anyways, Margin of Safety. Why is it the most important topic? It is in the most investing? important. Yeah, um, because it's the part that you need to have to get. Uh, good returns, basically. So uh, people think, if you read most write-ups and things, people will tell you what they're going to make in this stock, which may be true. Yeah. But a lot of times, things aren't going to go the way they expect. And so they need to have that margin of safety to end up with the overall returns that they um, uh, beating the market and stuff like that. And so generally, the way that we think of it is that uh, sort of our hurdle rate or whatever you want to call it, our expectations for how much a stock will make are pretty low compared to what most people have. Uh, our our estimates are uh, low, but we end up making more than that, and that's because we build in a margin of safety into those sorts of estimates. So mm-hmm. when I say I think the stock will return 10% a year over the next 10 years or 15% a year over the next 10 years or whatever, uh, usually it ends up returning a lot more than that yeah. because it returns it sooner. But you have that margin of safety built into it of calculating out a certain amount of time to make sure that it makes the kind of return that you want. That's mm-hmm. the approach that I tend to use. There are other ways to do it. Uh, Graham generally talks in terms of like net nets and things like that, and I've bought those too. Um, but it, it, it's so – let's use some examples from things that we've owned in the past, sure. right? So Maui Land and Pineapple. MLP. Right. We own that stock, and we bought it at um, probably uh, maybe 50%, do you think, or 40% of probably what the land 
its value was. Sure. Yeah. And that's just the residential land. It also owns some other land. We just said that land's not worth anything. It was making a tiny profit. We said, don't worry about the profit. Uh, and then we just took the amount of value that the land would have on a per acre basis mm-hmm. by trying to figure out what land per acre is worth in West Maui yeah. where they have that land. Yeah. And I think the books were valuing it at like what, two or three, or like it was, uh, it was, was valued it was like, in the market. Yeah. I don't remember, 200, 250,000, something like that. Yeah. It's been valued less than that at times. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would estimate probably half a million. Everyone acre. that we spoke to pretty much said if you could buy any piece of land up here for 200 to $250,000 per acre, that's like a steal. They yeah. said it doesn't go for less than five to $600,000 yeah. easily, like being very conservative. Right. So but there's your margin of safety. There's your margin of safety. But there's lots of things that can go wrong with the uh, business. So um, in a lot of write-ups, they don't take that into account. Sure. You know, one, the time can take a really long time. I think their their development plan is for 20 years. So that's a long time. <laughs> Two, they don't have all the capital they need to do it. Yeah. So they'd have to borrow or they have to issue shares or they have to sell off land or whatever to be able to do any developing themselves or they have to sell it to someone else who can develop it. So those are the risks. Mm-hmm. But you build in that big margin of safety, and then you have a success that way. Um, I've bought tons of stocks where I've paid no more than net cash for the company. We're bidding for one right now where that's the case. Um, and I like the business. Mm-hmm. But the idea is you don't pay anything for the business. You just pay for the cash. Yeah. And the business is what you get for free, and it'll turn out to be a good return. Yeah. I still like the business. I wouldn't buy it for just uh, a box of cash that doesn't have a business I like attached to it. Yeah. But I find a business that I like enough and cash and they're together in the same company, I buy it. I've done that a bunch of times. It's uh, tended to work out well. The worst case, I think it's worked out about as well as the market. Uh-huh. The best case has been five times the market, you yeah, know? Sure. So um, they're not that common, but that's a really big example of margin of safety, uh-huh. you know? Um, it's those sorts of things. Like a good Graham example of margin of safety is there's a stock I was looking at recently where probably based on the market price, uh, the earnings would justify it. So let's say a stock in that country might trade for 12 times earnings or something. Well, yeah. the stock is probably trading for 12 times its normal earnings. But on top of that, it then it has an inventory about as much as the company, uh, as about as much as the company's valued in the market at total. Yeah. So the market cap and inventory are about the same, and the market cap and cash are about the same. Mm-hmm. So if it earns uh, actual free cash flow each year, that could probably justify the price. The inventory alone could probably roughly justify the price, and the cash alone could probably roughly justify the price. It owns some uh, buildings too, some some property. Mm-hmm. So you know you feel like you have a lot of uh, margin of safety. If yeah. you're wrong about earnings, and it turns out this business can't produce any earnings, well, at least you have the cash that's covering the market cap. You know, sure. And at least if you did have to liquidate it, which is, you don't want to do, but if it ever came to that, the liquidation value is higher than the than the market price. So really. Reminds me of when Joel Greenblatt has talked about before, and we've spoken about this before too, how he has said that his uh, biggest positions aren't the ones that he thinks he's going to make the most amount of money on. It's the ones that he feels very certain that he's not going to lose any money on. Right. So what do you think people think about – because other value investors are – you know, I feel like we're in this weird stage of, of investing where, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people are buying like, you know, the bigger companies like Facebook and right. Amazon and Google and mm-hmm. all those. How do you think they're, they're thinking in their head about margin of safety? Is it the stock's just going to continue to go up? Because it's a right. lot different than the way that you just described it to me of, okay, well, if earnings don't produce, well, at least they have enough cash in the bank to cover the market cap today. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think they're counting on that they know how good the business is and how long it'll last in the future. I'll give you an example with something that has no assets. 
FICO. I bought FICO about um, almost 10 years ago now, and probably 2010 or something like that. A- at the time, its free cash flow yield on its stock price uh, was probably about 10%. Uh-huh. So that's enough for me, in theory. 10% is enough that, uh, now as it turned out, of those 10 years, that wouldn't outperform the market. But normally, 10% alone is enough to match the market or beat it. So if you find something with a 10% free cash flow yield, you don't need growth. You buy that stock, you hold it for 10 years, it'll either spend that 10% free cash flow buying back stock, paying yeah. dividends, or it'll pile up the cash over the 10 years, and at the end of the period, you'll have all your money back. Um, so a 10% yield is enough on its own. Yeah. You don't need growth. Uh-huh. So I bought it thinking there's a huge margin of safety because I think FICO will grow um, as because that was what probably the lowest 2010 or so, probably the lowest point in the credit cycle in terms of uh, how many credit checks would be run and uh-huh. things like that, so how many credit scores would be needed. They make money on every transaction. Yeah. So they make a, a small amount of money every time uh, a credit report is scored for somebody, right? So it's the smallest number of people having loan applications and things like that. It'll grow. But I didn't factor in growth. So you have a margin of safety because your growth is going to get you a better return. But yeah. if it didn't grow, then you, you would still have a return. And so the, the real reason I bought it, though, in that case is they were buying back their own stock. Yeah. And that changed in a big way. If Got they it. had that same 10% and they said, we're going to do something totally different we've never done before. We're going to acquire other businesses. There's no margin of safety in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a margin of safety in buying back their own business when it's a credit scoring business. And honestly... If I said credit score, you would say, oh, you mean a FICO score? That was you don't say, know what the a, other credit scores are. Yeah. I mean, it's very well right. known. Yeah. So it's the same sort of thing. And that would be true in Coke or whatever yeah. if it was trading at 15 times earnings. But if it's trading at 35 times earnings, I don't see the margin of safety. This is kind of remind you of um, Monish, Papri's, Heads, I Make Money, yes. Tails, I Don't Lose Much, if you ever read the book. Right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's the way I yeah. like, read it in my He head. does say that, yeah. Yeah, but, that, but that's a good philosophy to think about. because. Uh, yeah. But again, though, I feel like that's different than a lot of people that are investing in, like, for example, like Google or... Netflix or all these other companies where right. they're really betting on what? Uh, just future, the price going up, essentially. Which everyone's betting yeah. on that, but at least when this philosophy, you have a little bit more of a margin of safety. Yeah, and know? that's a different approach to it where you can, they, they could be right on the probabilities. The payoff is so big totally. that yeah. you could be right that way. But if you're wrong, it doesn't take much being uh, wrong by, it doesn't take being wrong by much to make it so you're no longer having a positive return at all. Now, what are your thoughts on the market turning when you have a significant margin of safety? So you buy FICO, yeah. it's got a 10% free cash flow yield, you know, over, turn, or over time, 10 years, you're at least going to get your cash back. Right. If there's growth, that's yes. the cherry on top of the cake. If they buy back their stock, that's also very good. Yes. What happens if, hypothetically if the market turns? Uh, at about the same point, I bought a stock where it kept going down, IMS Health. You bought when the market was going down? Uh, probably from the time I bought, the market kept going down for three months or so. I probably bought it in January of uh, 2009. Now, did the stock so that's a year cheaper? earlier than FICO. Or did it? It got significantly cheaper. Really? Also because uh, in 2008 election, Obama had won, so there was expectations about some stuff about healthcare changing. Sure. Yeah. And the market was also down a lot in the first couple months. I don't remember exactly if the market was down through March of 2009 or something, but probably. Um, so yeah, it went down. The stock went down a bunch. Uh-huh. I sold other stocks to buy more of it. I sold some Berkshire Hathaway to buy it. And then how'd that do? It was taken over by a private equity within a year or so. Oh, really? Yeah. It's gone public again under a totally different name. Really? Yeah, it merged with some stuff and went public under a fancy name. Interesting. So, yeah. But a wide moat company, it went down. It was buying back its own stock, had a high free cash flow yield, so I liked it, and I bought more of it. Uh-huh. And I sold some other stuff to buy more of it, yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah. So, I is mean... That, is, that, is that something that you look for, or you look for to identify companies... W- where you could invest, I guess, and have a, a margin of safety is free cash yes. flow yield because essentially, yes. You know, and if they have, 
So, so if, if somebody listening were to, let's say, want to screen for companies to sort of scrub through and, right. and look for, what would you give them? Number one for margin of safety is number of consecutive years of profitability. Yeah. That's definitely number one. Yeah. Uh, number two is low uh, debt. Okay. Uh, low total liabilities, actually. So I, it's hard for a company to go broke if it generates cash every single year. Um, it's hard to screen for free cash flow for various reasons. So profit is works fine. Yeah. But in general, you want a business that has free cash flow every single year. And there are businesses like that. There are businesses that have there there are businesses that have had positive free cash flow for fifty straight years. Sure. Um, among big businesses, they're all the blue chips you'd expect and stuff. You know, I don't know the last time that Microsoft didn't have free cash flow. Um, but uh, then you want a low level of total liabilities, so it can't go broke, and uh, and then you you want something that you find it hard to believe that they would lose a lot of uh, business quickly, which usually means a very high customer retention rate. Sure, yeah, yeah. durable, right? Durable. Which yeah. is yeah. So those two companies, FICO and IMS Health, generally once someone starts using them, the transaction volume might be lower, but companies don't generally stop using them. Have you found from your experience? because these companies are trading cheaper, mm -hmm. that there's some sort of issue going on within the business at the time, hence the reason why it's trading cheap, or? They're usually some sort of category that people hate yeah. at that moment. Uh -huh. I also bought an ad agency at that time. So you can imagine credit, <laughs> a advertising, healthcare. That went 2010. Those were all hated yeah, in, in sure. that time period. Yeah, yeah. They, were, they were posting some of their worst results. So in it's the last, more so when? Uh, in terms of margins, some of them, I think ad agencies may have had their worst margin in 30 years then. So, well, what gave you the confidence that it was going to revert and not continue? <laughs> I don't know. Some people ask me questions about that. Like, um, well, could it keep going down? It could keep going down forever. <laughs> I mean, advertising spending could keep going down forever. I had faith that they weren't losing market share. Yeah. So if you're saying, well, ad spending go down every year for the next 10 years, will the amount of credit scores that people need go down in the next 10 years? Maybe. I mean, maybe the, it, it's possible that happened in Japan or during the Great Depression or something. Yeah. It's possible. I mean, Graham had a really hard time. He was on margin. Uh, in not in 1929 when he was well prepared for the crash, but a few years later, uh, I don't remember if it was around 32 or so. But there was another leg down in the market when things had been really cheap and a lot of value investors got into things and they went down further. But he was using margin. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you're using margin at all, then that's no uh, you don't have a margin of safety when you do that. Sure. And th that's true for you. Notice that I don't buy retailers basically. Yeah. And it's pretty simple reason why, with few exceptions in the U.S., uh, they're leasing everything. And if you do the math on how I would say you look at margin of safety, it does not take a large decline in their sales to not be able to cover their rent. Mm -hmm. um, so like I mentioned a, a, something that's a retailer in another country where I said the inventory, the cash, or each cover it and stuff, yeah. right? They could, by my math, uh, afford to barely sell anything in their stores, still pay their rent. And if they had to do that for five years, they still wouldn't have burned all their cash. Yeah. And their leases all expire within five years. Yeah. So if literally tomorrow no one comes into their stores and they had to pay all of their leases out in cash right now, they could do it with their cash on hand. Or they could burn it for years that way. You know, They could lose money, but they can afford to. A lot of companies cannot afford to lose money uh, most retailers will not lose money for very long at all before they're completely broke. They'll uh -huh. only show a few years of losses, and then they'll be gone. Yeah. Uh, a bank probably will report its first loss and be gone in the same year. Sure. You know, it, and, like, and, take and, an investment bank. They'll have one quarter, we lost money. The next quarter, they'll be <laughs> insolvent and out of business. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that and that company you're referencing, too, is being, like, proactive about, like, their leases and stuff yeah. as well. Yeah, sure. Which is, which totally is what different. you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. In yeah. case that's something. Yeah, Graham's ideas about margin of safety come from bonds. So uh, bondholders and, and bonds today have much less of those sorts of things in them than when Graham. What were was bonds investing. yielding when he wrote about them? 
Uh, when With he, this concept. Well, it's interesting. When he wrote about them for Intelligent Investor, incredibly low. Uh-huh. So Intelligent Investor, uh, let's see, that was a few years after the lowest bond yields that I can think of. Probably 46 or so had the lowest corporate bond yields until very recently. Um, so really, really low. But earlier in his career, no, they were much higher. Yeah, in the 20s and stuff, yeah, they were much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could have had a railroad bond that was yielding 6% or something, I'm sure. Wow. Yeah. So, but, but how did he think about it then? Um, so he thought about it in terms of how much uh, earnings cover the fixed costs mm-hmm. that they have, the fixed charges. So um, for a company that you're looking at now, that would mean things like interest payments and rent. Mm-hmm. So so like a good way of doing it for um, restaurants, retailers, things like that, that is EBITDAR. Uh, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and rent. rent yeah. And then you see how much that covers rent. The idea is not to add that all back together and then value the company yeah. on that. It's to look at that and how much that covers things. Same thing with like real estate. What are their their cash flows that they have on the building yeah. versus how much they actually have to pay the in, NOI. In, in debt. Yeah, how much yeah. do they have to pay in interest on the debt? Plus, how much do they have to actually refinance things? Mm-hmm. So that's all that many people leave out is you might actually have to refinance it. If, if See, when... Graham was investing. There were railroads who had issued 100-year bonds, 30-year bonds. Well, that's very little that's maturing each year. But now you're looking at things where a lot of companies are counting on um, being able to refinance debt next year or something. They're only borrowing for a few years um, before someone uh, could make it so that they would have to um, repay the debt. And so that's a – you have to include that part. You have to say not just how can they cover their interest, but to have a true margin of safety, you have to say and repay the debt. You know, if, if the debt matures in 2022, you need to find out how they have the cash to pay it in 2022, or you don't have a margin of safety because they have to find another uh, lender sure. to give them the money mm-hmm. then, yeah. What are your thoughts on Seth Klarman and, like, the way that he invests? Because, obviously, he wrote the book Margin of Safety. Right, and yeah. I know everybody likes to call themselves a value investor, but he right. truly invests different, in my opinion, than other value investors. Yeah, do. I think it's more similar to Graham. Much totally, more similar. yeah. yeah. And yeah. I much think there's less times like where he holds a ton of cash, too, yep. a, lot of, a lot of the time, right? Yep. It's much more like Graham and much less like Buffett. Uh, and Graham didn't really hold cash, but what he would do is just do tons of merger arbitrage, liquidations, things yeah, like that, yeah. which are ways that you can uh, – they're not related to the market, and they're usually easier ways to find a margin of safety. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah he's he's. – I would say he's much more like Graham than Buffett. Yes, definitely. In Buffett the, over the time has gotten bigger, has had less and less to do with Graham's sort of approach. Though Buffett does still insist on a margin of safety, sure, and yeah. he rarely pays as much as some people – who talk about like the kind of companies he buys and stuff, if you notice, he doesn't pay as much as they might be paying for compounders and things mm-hmm. like, you know, he may talk about how much he wants to own those kinds of businesses, but how much did he really pay for Apple versus how much should people pay say, for like, what 10 or 12 times for, earnings, you know, Netflix and things like yeah. that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very, uh, it's very interesting. Well, how do you think other than that example you gave that he thinks about like margin of safety when you're, Managing so much money to the point where he's investing on only two hundred. Well, the kind of industry. So there's not a lot of like. Yeah. You know, and maybe that's to his point. I mean, maybe that's why he's holding like what? How much in cash right now? Yeah, he's holding hundred cash and something yep. billion. Yeah. Yeah, and the kind of industries he buys into. Yeah. They're very durable, and usually they're things where he can predict that the earnings will be higher in five or ten years. He's put a lot into utilities, into railroads. Those are things with a high margin of safety in the sense that as long as he doesn't pay a high price versus today's earnings, he's probably just counting on being very sure that earnings will be higher in five or ten years. Mm-hmm. The danger with something that has a high PE now is that 
not only might you uh, might he not grow as much as you expect, but it actually can go down the earnings because of competition. Whereas sure. if he's investing in regulated utility, its earnings are not going to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, now your upside isn't so big. But we talked about a stock like that to me, which was uh, Monarch Cement. Mm-hmm. I said not a big upside there, but to me the margin of safety is even at book value. There's a margin of safety. Now you could say theoretically, well that's just book. Why not? Is why shouldn't you be waiting to buy at a discount to book or something? Sure. But to me this cement business in the middle of the United States is so insulated from competition. It's such a durable thing that just to know that you're getting at a big discount to what others would pay for it and at book value, which is very low compared to what actually is invested in the plan and then written off over time, is really cheap. Mm-hmm. And so I think you could invest on the basis of like normal earnings or something like that in something like cement. But I wouldn't do it in something like oil. Mm-hmm. That's sure. all. It could be produced anywhere else in the world and suddenly it affects your price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very insulated cement prices in the middle of the US. You're not insulated at all if they find oil somewhere else in, in the world. So you want to be careful about assuming a certain oil price or something where it's a lot safer to assume a certain cement price in one part of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So for everybody listening, if you had to to give them any advice mm-hmm. on a way to think about margin of safety, what would you say? Uh, number one thing is when picking a stock, you want to focus on the top of your list should be a stock that you would feel most comfortable with if the price declined by a lot. Okay. So it's the one that you have the most confidence will work out even though something has changed with the business. In other words, the company that has the biggest margin of safety is the one that you need the least information about. So if it's a company that, say, they sent you a report once a year with the balance sheet and the income statement and the cash flow statement, and that's all you needed, that's the business you should invest in. If it's something like a retailer where you feel that (laughs) you need month-to-month same-store sales or you don't want to stay in it, there's not a margin of safety there. If you feel you need that, if you need to see comparable store sales – uh, on a very regular basis for an investment, that investment does not have a margin of safety. Or, you know, debt. You need to s- see updates on the balance sheet every uh, quarter because if you d- had to wait a whole year, you'd be really concerned about their debt and how that refinancing was going and stuff. There's not a margin of safety there. Uh-huh. The the less information you need, how the less frequently you need it, that's the thing that has the higher margin of safety. I mean, Buffett may have bought into Coke at something that is a price that isn't a Bangram-type price, but it's a company where you do. don't need more than once a year to be sent some report. Yeah, you know, sure. mm-hmm. You don't need to know a lot about Coke up to this minute to know because it's so little changes in the business. Mm-hmm. And that's the important thing because Ben Graham focused on the balance sheet. The balance sheet is the slowest of any statement to change. Buffett does focus on earnings instead, but he only focuses on businesses that change very slowly. So it's an absence of change in either case. Cool. Well, I thought that was... A good job, Mr. Jeffrey. You earned your paycheck today. Good job. You earned your keep. We want to thank everybody so much for tuning with us here today. If you are in New York, you'd like to meet up with Jeff and myself. We are in New York right now. Mm-hmm. As you're listening to this, we're walking like around we're the streets. Dallas, but we're yeah, in New York. We're, yeah, we're in New York. We got the same office in New York. Mm-hmm. So if that's something that you'd want to do, reach out to me, info at focuscompounding.com. Join Jeff's Weekly Gazette. You like free ideas, free stocks. Go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.